Welcome to MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Labs Alliances podcast. I'm Kara Miller. On today's show, a researcher who spends his time thinking about when business leaders win big by using AI and when they don't. So much energy right now is on the hype. People are like, I'm going to do AI everything, right? And you have to say, well, maybe it doesn't work for everything. Neil Thompson talks about who the first movers are and why they're shelling out money to be first. Plus, tuna, ice cream, bananas, and what they should teach businesses about adopting AI. There's some predictions that you're going to make that are just not that valuable and not worth it. So that can of tuna, it can sit on the shelf for an extra two days, and it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't cost you very much. And importantly, you don't have to spend a whole lot to figure out exactly how many cans of tuna to stock. Today, we'll look at how you make those kinds of predictions and when it's worth making them. That's coming up next. It's important to remember that bigger is not always better. The biggest building is not necessarily the prettiest. The biggest company sometimes loses its way. But this is a story about how bigger is better, at least when it comes to deep learning. And to make the point, we're going to talk for just a minute about proteins in the body. So protein folding Uh, comes because when the body produces the proteins that make up basically our entire body, when our bodies produce those, they actually produce it as sort of one long line. So think of it as like, you know, think of it as a sentence with a whole bunch of words. And what's weird is it folds into this three-dimensional shape. And so it has to fold up in this this useful way that makes it sort of a three-dimensional thing that's in the body. Neil Thompson is the director of the Future Tech Research Project at MIT, and he also has appointments at CSAIL and MIT's initiative on the digital economy. And he says... Both people and computers have tackled the problem of how do you fold this protein for a long time, and computers weren't very good at it. Until, that is, they were. In 2020, the journal Nature announced that DeepMind, an AI company that had been acquired by Google a few years before, had made what Nature called a gargantuan leap. And that leap was that DeepMind knew almost perfectly how proteins would fold in the body. What's really, I I find amazing about this example is it shows just how important it is to have this very, very large amount of computing power. And what I mean by that is harnessing more and more computers than we've ever had to solve this particular problem. Thompson notes that a bunch of folks in academia were trying to use deep learning to address this very problem of how proteins would fold. But, he says, the people at DeepMind just had a lot more power at their disposal a thousand times more compute. And honestly, that made all the difference. So here's the takeaway. Smart people are great, and you want smart people working on your problem. But even so, they are going to be limited by the amount of compute available to them. So if you have two people, one one of whom is at an organization that's got a lot of resources, has a lot of compute, and you have someone equally smart in an organization that doesn't have it, the person who doesn't have it is not going to be able to compete. What does that mean for the future? Well, not surprisingly, it's going to have profound effects. Only people with a lot of resources are the ones who can really be at the frontier. And that means that if you're at Google, it's pretty easy to do these things. And if you're at a small university that doesn't have much, it's very hard for you to do this. And we can already see these effects in some of my research. We can see that 
even in AI research, so the stuff that academics specialize right. in, we already see the influence of industry going up because they're the ones who have the resources to do the really big problems. Within industry, it seems like it would also be an issue because you've got behemoths with, you know, very, very deep pockets um, and a lot of access to compute power. And then obviously there's always like startups or small companies and they want to really get far in deep learning too. When you just sort of look at that business landscape, what does that say to you about what that looks like? Yeah. So let, let me maybe take a, a just a brief moment of digression before I answer your question, because people might say, well, wait a minute, you're talking about only big companies doing this, right? But actually, you know, if you think about something like ChatGPT, like everybody can sign up for ChatGPT and it costs them 20 bucks a month or something like that. Doesn't that mean that everybody can use it? Yes, it's true that it's open and available like that, but the question is, like, how many of these big models are there going to be, right? And who's going to control them? Because, of course, if, if one person controls them, they can also control the price, right? Economists worry about that a lot, about the monopoly effects of these things. And so I think we absolutely can say that because these costs are so high, these big firms are going to be dominating the creation of these big models, and that's going to give them a lot of control about how these models perform, what they're optimized for, and ultimately who can use them at what price. Do you do you worry about that? Who controls it and, and how much these things will cost? Absolutely. Uh, and I, let me sort of give two versions of the, that worry that, okay. that get to me. So one is sort of from a broader environmental and social point of view, which is just that these models – you know, we're now running them for so long, so we can be running them for, you know, I think training a single model that you might use, you might be running on tens of thousands of chips for months and months of time. So that's producing, taking a lot of energy, producing a lot of carbon. So there's a worry there, which at a broader society level, as, as we escalate like this, we're going to be using a lot of resources. I also worry about it because we want to make sure that these models, as we're building them, really reflect the priorities across society, not just a profit-oriented one that a company might have. And I, I don't want to sort of demean that too much. I don't want to say that, like, profit motive is bad. Often the profit motive pushes firms in the same direction as society. Mm -hmm. That's sort of why capitalism works, right? But not always, right? Sometimes they can be at odds, or sometimes we can just say there are public benefits we want, which are not reflected there, we want to make sure that other people can also be building these models so that we can have good performance on the, those things as well. Do you feel like something fundamental has shifted here? Because I, I can imagine somebody thinking, like, hasn't cutting-edge research always been expensive? Haven't, like, don't big companies always have? I mean, they always have deeper pockets mm. than, like, something with, you know, scrap like some scrappy startup. Sure, absolutely. So I think here— it's important to say, like, just as you're hinting at here, we often get this division of academia does some things and industry does some other things. And often that division is sort of basic research versus applied research. So basic research saying, oh, we're, we're going to look at these underlying properties of the world and figure them out, and then someone else is going to apply it. And applied research tends to be a lot more expensive, and so that's usually a good divide that, that exists. But one of the challenges there is with AI is that so much of the progress with these models comes from making them bigger that you can't have that sort of neat divide of, well, we're just going to say academia is going to do this stuff, the basic research, because actually so much of that basic research involves what happens when the model is 100 times as big, or how do we make it 100 times as big? And so you still need the resources to get there. And so that division doesn't exist as cleanly as it can exist elsewhere. Hmm. Okay, so given that, uh, do you have a vision for what you'd like to see in terms of the development of large language models? 
So what I'd like to see is to make sure that there is still capacity in other groups other than just industry to be able to build these really cutting-edge models. For example, with these large language models that everyone is talking about, like ChatGPT, what I want to make sure is that, for example, academics be trained such a model. And maybe there's only, you know, one academic model or two academic models and people have to collaborate across universities or something like that. But I want to make sure that there is this capacity. And so uh, in the people may be familiar, there's this new national AI research resource uh, called NAIR, which is being built precisely to provide computing power to academics and so that they can uh, actually be building models. But right now that, so we've seen an important first step in them doing that, but the scale of it is still not quite where we need to get in order for academics to be really doing all of the things that are exciting in AI right now. So let me ask kind of a related question. Um, I know that a lot of people at MIT, a lot of people at other places, they're working with businesses who are trying to think about, okay, how do we, AI seems very important, you know, how do we incorporate it into our business? What's the most effective way? And I wonder, in, in terms of just what you've seen, you've kind of got older established companies with deeper pockets, probably, um, trying to incorporate it. You've got younger, scrappier companies, which I guess would have the advantage of uh, their old ways are less entrenched. And so maybe they can just start fresh being like, well, let's just do this with AI. We've never done it any other way. Give me a sense of the landscape you've seen in terms of implementation of AI into business processes, because like, it's hard to change the way people do things. Absolutely. So I think, as you're saying, I think small, very small companies, there is this sort of like AI-born companies, right, that are just starting out. And there are the assumption is they're going to use AI for a lot of things. They're not going to have that many people. They're going to try and harness it. And so I, I, we definitely see a lot of that. I think, though, what we see is uh, if you look across the economy, some work that has been done by the Census Bureau and some of the folks working with them shows that it is still overwhelmingly big firms that are the ones that are really adopting AI. And so it may be surprising given the amount of coverage that these things get in the news, but it's only something like 6% of firms that are actually adopting AI at this point, according to the census. Yeah. And so, uh, and it, that is overwhelmingly those big firms because of the resources, because it's so expensive to hire the people and, and do stuff. Now, you could say, well, okay, those big firms are doing it, but how successful are they, right? So, uh, and this was an interesting case where we did, um, we actually did some detailed work uh, on a specific example of an implementation with a grocery store. And what we found was that there was a lot of promise, but also a lot of cost in actually doing this. So I want to get to the grocery store example, but first it's interesting, 6%. So that's a pretty small amount of implementation so far. But I also wonder if within the category of big companies, which applies to like everything from like oil and gas exploration to retail to, you know, all sorts of things, if you see a breakdown between like Amazon's a big company, um, you know, but so is Walmart, so is ExxonMobil's, you know, so are lots of other places. Do you feel like the 6% that are using it are highly concentrated in certain areas of big companies? Hmm. Good question. So we certainly know anecdotally areas that are having a lot of influence like this. We're actually doing some work in the lab. It's not, not quite done yet, but where we're trying to actually figure out what part of the processes are going on. But I think if you look broadly across what people are doing, 
I think what you see is, first of all, there's a real concentration in places where there's a lot of data or a lot of interactions, right? So you see a lot of customer service things because that's very expensive to have the people doing it. And so if, as much as you can interact, there's a lot of data there. So people do that. You know, there are lots of prediction work. So the Amazons and stuff of the world or the Googles, you know, they it's worth a lot to them to be able to predict what product to show you, what ad to show you, mm-hmm. what result to show you. And so all of those cases, you get a lot of AI implementations. So that's sort of on the one extreme. And then on the other extreme, you get what I would traditionally call like scientific computing. So scientific computing might be the big oil companies trying to figure out where to drill or people doing big scientific simulations of weather or something like that. There also you see a lot of AI adoption going on at that side. Well, it seems like you're saying the places where the stakes are high. Like if you can find another place to drill, like it's worth some investment. But it also sounds like some of the places where that are already doing AI in-house, like – I mean, I assume Apple, Amazon, Google, all these places are, they kind of are, this is like a thing they're doing anyway. They might as well try to use it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the grocery store Um, because I think this is a really interesting, like this just sort of goes to the question of like, okay, you're a big company. How do you implement AI or do you, is it even worth doing? And just on that question, do you feel like a lot of people come to you and are like, is this even worth my time and my energy? Because it is time and energy and money. So I would say, uh, perhaps not, not entirely for the good, I would say that so much energy right now is on the hype, right? I think I think it's more like people are like, I'm going to do AI everything, right? <laughs> and you have to say, well, maybe it doesn't work for everything. Um, and the, I think what the what's nice about the supermarket example is it shows that it can be valuable, but you really have to understand that it can also be high cost. And there's a trade-off here. So let me let me lay yeah, out a little tell, bit more of the situation. Tell us about the supermarket. Yeah. So this is a, a European supermarket chain. And they have the problem that all supermarkets have, which is they need to predict how much to order. And this is a little hard, right? You don't know if how much ice cream you should order, if it's suddenly it's going to be a really beautiful day and suddenly people are going to buy you out or, uh, you know, uh, I, something I didn't realize until I did this case, for example, that there's a huge spike in nacho consumption. If you're, you happen to have a football game with your te- local team on that Sunday, for example. Uh, didn't think about it, right? but it makes sense. But it makes sense, right? Yeah. Exactly. So there are all of these things that, you know, if you are the manager of one of these grocery stores, you need to be thinking about. And so historically, we've had systems that have basically said, well, okay, last year, how much did people buy about this time? And then the and then the manager will make a little adjustment. So it might be like, oh, last year we did, people bought 20 cans of tuna. Right, right. right. I'm going to order that. But, you know, I've got a few more people in the area, and now I'm going to order 22 or something. Okay. Right? So they might make these little adjustments. But it's worth a lot of money to them to get this right. Because if they order too much, they've got just extra stuff sitting on the shelf. And even worse, some things like bananas or something like that will just go bad. So yeah. they, they waste that totally wasted money. You don't want a lot of shrimp sitting around for too long. Exactly. No. Exactly. And, and conversely, um, if you order too little, obviously there's some sales you didn't make. Your customers are unhappy. So this doesn't work in either way if you get it wrong. And so what this supermarket said is, well, you know – like one of the things that AI is typically known for being good at is integrating a bunch of different types of data and sort of synthesizing them into predictions. And that's a particularly strong point. So, okay, well, let's try that. And so, indeed, they did try it, and they found a remarkable success. So the errors that they were making when they, you know, like they ordered 10 and actually only five was consumed, that 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 getting it wrong portion, they dropped that by a third. 
which is a big deal in right, this area. That's, right. a, that's a lot of improvement. But it was also, the system was so expensive that they didn't want to adopt it. Okay. Now, what has happened since this sort of initial decision is they've gone back now and they've started to look at it in more detail. And in fact, when we did this case study, we also went in and did that, that was analytics in more detail. So we did the real, the economics of it. And what we saw was that they definitely should have adopted it, but only some places. And the intuition behind this is because you do a lot of compute, because you uh, that involves a bunch of costs, there's some predictions that you're going to make that are just not that valuable and not worth it. So that can of tuna, actually, it can sit on the shelf for an extra two days, and it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't cost you very much. Right. And so getting that prediction right, you don't want to spend a lot of money to get that prediction right because you having one extra on the shelf is the swing that you need to – the spare capacity that you need to do it. Conversely, the shrimps you were just talking about – or, you know, the fruit and, like, the bananas and stuff like that, all of that, it's definitely worth doing. And so what, to me, this example really showed was, first of all, the power of these AI systems to do this kind of work, which is really exciting, but also that unlike traditional computing where we sort of think about, like, we don't pay much attention to how much computing it uses because most of the stuff we do it does not take very much, you actually do have to pay attention to it with these AI systems and think about the cost and the trade-offs there. So do you think everybody is sort of starting to learn in business that you have to think about like, wow, this could save us $50 million in lost groceries. But then on the other side, this will cost us $50 million. <laughs> like, maybe not, you know, maybe that doesn't make any sense, actually. Exactly. And I think the, you know, the, this is going to be most salient to the people who, that might need, when you might need to design your own system, for example. So maybe, like, you look at all the stuff that the big tech companies are, are producing and you say, like, that's all well and good, but my problem is much more specific. And it might still be very valuable, but now, now you really have to build a big system on your own, and that can be very expensive. And just to put that in context, so they estimated that uh, GPT-4 cost OpenAI more than $100 million to train. So these really are very big numbers. So that when you step back and, you know, companies across sectors come to you, let's say, and they're like, we're very excited. AI, it's very important. You know, our CEO said we should get on this right away. Do you sort of step back and think, with some companies, there may be no problem where the cost of AI is justified in solving your particular problem? Or do you feel like, no, no, it should be everywhere, at least somewhere across the economy? So I think for most firms, there will be applications, and for many of them, quite a few applications that they can do. I think the question is going to be more in two different directions. So one is going to be like, is it every problem? Right? And I think w what our research says is that if that problem is hard enough, if it's specific enough, then you know you actually have to think very carefully about whether you want to do it and really really do the math. I think the second area where firms need to, to think about this and why they're often going to have at least some adoption is that we can get these partial adoption cases. So um, we did another case study that exemplified this kind of well, and I, I thought it was uh, very interesting. So this was an insurance company, a car insurance company. And they had a system whereby when their clients got in an accident, they would take a picture with their cell phone and just send it in. So no, nobody actually goes to see it. They just send in the pictures and an assessor looks at it and says, okay, you need to replace the hood. You need to replace the bumper, so on. And they wanted to develop a system that could do that in a fully automated way and found that they couldn't at a reasonable cost, right? Again, they, they had that situation. But what they found they could do is produce a system that was 
largely accurate, but not enough for their whole thing. But they could use that system to then pre-fill a form that the assessor was doing. So now the human assessor would look at it and be like, yep, the hood, yep, this, this. And it was all filled in for them already. And they're like, oh, no, no, no. Like, the tire doesn't need to be replaced. This other thing can happen or something like that. And so it made the assessors much more productive, right? And so that sort of partial automation or sometimes called augmentation, I think, can be a very powerful thing that a lot of firms are going to have to think about. And the reason why that ends up being very possible, even if the full automation isn't possible, is because for these deep learning systems, there's this remarkable thing that getting that last bit of performance is incredibly expensive. And this is sometimes uh, discussed in the context of what's called an AI scaling law. But it's this idea that you have some system and maybe it has like 30% error. And if you wanted to have that, so if you want to get down to 15%, you need to expand your computing. And you might need to expand your computing by like 4,000 times. Okay, and then if you want to go from fifteen to seven and a half, you have to expand it another four thousand times. Right, right. You might think you just have to double it, but like, no, no, no the stakes Ex- are high. Exactly, okay. exactly. And so that, consequentially, what that means is that very high performance, those very high performance systems, are incredibly expensive. So I know you think some about the future of jobs and organizations, and I wonder then if you think that the sort of integration of AI into the business world, is that going to be like an earthquake for not necessarily jobs existing or not, though you can say, yes, that it's going to be an earthquake for that, but also like the nature of jobs? Or is it going to be like, a tremor. <laughs> so we're on the Richter scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, so this is definitely a big change. But I also think that some predictions are often sort of saying, well, like what could be done? And that's not quite the same thing as what will be done. And this is a big, actually a big area of work that my lab is researching at the moment, because we're trying to understand, well, just because like a, a human used the vision to do something, Like, could a computer vision system do that same thing? And the answer is, like, sometimes the answer is yes, but the cost would be too high, right? And so we're actually going into some of the data that the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics and some of the other parts of the U.S. government have to understand actually these tasks and how much value there is in replacing them. And what we find is that many, many tasks, uh, individual firms are not going to want to automate them themselves. And so that, that means that either those things won't get automated, or we're going to have to have a big shift in the overall economy. So it's going to have to be, someone's going to have to build a big cross-cutting system that works for everybody, right? So if you imagine, let me give you a very concrete example. Okay. So uh, think about a bakery, right? So if you look at the the tasks that, that bakers do, one of the things they do is they look at their ingredients and they say, are all of these still good, right? Should I put them in my food or should I not? And that's about 6% of what they do. So it turns out that, you know, if you think about 6% of a baker's time and you maybe have five bakers in a little bakery, it might be worth about $14,000 worth of time, like, in order to replace that with an automated task. Building your own system to do that is way, way more expensive than $14,000, right? right? And so you don't – that individual bakery doesn't want to do it. And so that's the part where you say, like, actually, some tasks may not be adopted right away. But there's also the other side where you say, well, if like some bakery was able to figure it out and now offer a system where everybody has a little camera and they're doing it, maybe you could automate all bakeries at the same time. And so I think 
that to me is a really interesting change that the economy is going to have to go through in order to actually get the benefits of automation. Well, I mean, does that bakery take credit cards? But they did not build the system. There's no way. It would be way beyond them. Like, they're okay with being like, you know, being told, here's a machine. You run the credit card through this or whatever. People tap. But, like, they're not building that system. Exactly. And so, and just in the way you said, I think people will, in fact, adopt these platform systems or these, like, AI-as-a-service systems. But it's also worth saying it took a long time for stores to adopt these credit card things, right? Many took a long time. And so that will slow down the adoption of AI versus some of these predictions where people are just saying, like, oh, my goodness, there's just a huge number of tasks that will be replaced right away. Some will be replaced right away. Some of them, you're going to have this diffusion process. It also, you know, just to go back to what you had said at the beginning, that about 6% of companies, I think, right, are, are using AI. There can be a big difference between first movers and everybody else. Like, you know, just because, like, there were word processors did not mean that all medical records got uh, switched from paper to digital in a day. In fact, decades and decades, and I would venture to say there are probably some still in paper. Yeah, right. right? Absolutely. And so it sounds like I wonder if you also think, like, there's going to be a lot of companies that are, like, not even close to being the first movers here that are going to take decades to change. Absolutely. And I I think the the question is just going to be, like— what does that mean for the overall economy, right? So I think, you know, if, if you have a little corner store bakery and, uh, you know, they make your favorite apple pie or something like that, you know, there's not going to be a huge incentive for them to adopt that in any short period of time, right? The, the incremental value is not that high. But I think what we should expect is that big firms, the ones that have scale, you should expect them to be moving pretty quickly on this. Um, let me ask you a big picture question about global competitiveness and computing. Mm. There's a great quote you told Politico. Here it is. A huge proportion of the algorithms that have pushed computing forward have come out in the United States. Many of the biggest supercomputers have been here. That overflows into all these other areas of society and gives them benefits. We're actually really losing that lead. Really? Really. Unfortunately, yes. So... And let me let me say for a moment here. I, I want to speak more broadly than just AI, because I think you know people are very aware that there's a ton of exciting AI work going on in the United States, although also in places like China. But let me set that aside and just think of computing more broadly, because AI is just one part of it, right? So if you go back to the early days of computing in the 40s and 50s, you know people were starting to develop these systems, and as they did it, they realized, oh, I have to build these algorithms, right? And these are just you think of these as like the recipes that the computer is going to use to solve these particular problems. And what's amazing is a huge number of those sort of important first algorithms were developed in the United States, and many of the improvements on them. So one of the big things that that computer scientists work on, particularly theoretical computer scientists, is this question of how do I, how can I do this thing more efficiently over time? And so turns out that that improvement is actually very, very big. So I think people, when people think about the progress in computing, they almost always think of Moore's Law and progress in the hardware. In fact, algorithmic progress has also been incredibly rapid and has also been very important for this. But for the United States, what we saw was that in those initial days when computing was primarily in the United States, there were many people who were just working in the United States, who had been born in the United States, who were doing these things. But in the Coming decades, what happened was the United States brought more and more excellent computer scientists and mathematicians from elsewhere in the world to the United States to do these things. 
And so that's, you know, that was very exciting and produced a lot of benefits that we had. And as you mentioned, also, this was also true in supercomputers. We also built some of the biggest supercomputers. The Department of Energy did it, um, for example, to safeguard some of the nuclear stockpile and things like that. So there was these very big ones. But in all of those areas, we see that China is investing a huge amount, right? They have obviously more, more people who can work on these things, but they're also just investing a lot. And we're not investing enough as a country, in order to, to maintain a lead in these things. And so China is continuing to close this gap. And we see that in, in some important uh, algorithmic awards they've started to win in terms of some of these lists of the biggest supercomputers called the top 500 list, you can see that their uh, presence on that is, you know, in some dimensions actually eclipsing the United States already. And so we should really worry about that because when we make these cool discoveries, though, that overflows into the companies that want to use these things, right? We discover a new way to model airflow and, you know, the people who make jetliners or the people who build long distance trucks or something like that adjust what they do to become more efficient. Right. And that happens in many, many different dimensions. And we're just not investing enough to keep the lead and being able to have those things. And for, you know, people who are like, but I mean, look at Silicon Valley. Aren't we kind of running the world when it comes to tech? Are you saying like, yeah, but that stuff is based on on a previous generation of America being ahead that does not predict the future? Yeah, I'm saying that it's it makes sense that Silicon Valley is all that it has been because we have companies that have been there for decades that have been benefited from these advantages. And so there's been a huge lead. But it's also the case that if China makes some of the key discoveries that are the next generation of computing, that's going to give them a huge advantage in those areas, right? And so let me let me actually be a little bit more concrete as something. So um, people may be familiar, Moore's Law is this idea that as we miniaturize the parts of our computer chips, we can put more parts on them, and that makes the chips more powerful. And that that process has been going for decades and decades and made computers much, much more powerful. But that ability to miniaturize, we're running out of our ability to do it. And so as we run out, the question is like, well, what is the successor? And so for parts of it, it might be quantum computing. For part of it, it might be optical computing. There are other technologies like neuromorphic that people are thinking about. And there are also just a lot of other like materials. So people may have heard of spintronics and stuff like that. So there are a lot of possibilities. Probably no single technology is going to be the successor for everything. And so the question is like, well, whoever gets the first in some of these technologies is going to be able to shape what that is, and their their companies are going to have a big advantage in the computing that they can do. In the same way that we see today with like the people who can get GPUs and who can run their stuff faster. And the problem is that right now, in a lot of areas, China is leading in these next generation technologies, right? And so that means that next set of things, if we don't get there first, actually could matter a lot for our advantage. So it sounds like your advice would be the government should invest a lot more into computing in, 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 in some ways in the way China's doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's – I mean, I think we already see some good first steps in this with the CHIPS Act recently, right, where we see an investment in making sure that we have cutting-edge chips and can secure supply. That's definitely very important. But we are way under-investing in these next-generation systems, Right? I think it's it's a little hard because for so many decades, this sort of model of silicon, just miniaturizing it, has worked so well. It's hard to be willing to invest billions or tens of billions of dollars. But, you know, even tens of billions would be low compared to the benefit that society would get if we can actually get them. 
Um, a final question about quantum computing, which I know there's some promise, but there's some maybe skepticism that should be applied. I, I wonder if people should be thinking this is coming right around the corner, that we'll be implementing this all over the place or what? Yeah, so, so I don't think it's right around the corner. And I don't think it's going to be very general, which is going to be important here. So what I mean by very general is like, you know, when you buy a computer, you upgrade to the new one, you just assume that the new computer will do all the stuff that the old one can do, right? It isn't going to be that if we, you know, you, it's not, you're not going to be able to upgrade from like the classical to the quantum and be able to do everything you could do before. It's only going to be a subset of problems you can do. And that really arises because um, sort of counter to, I think, most people's expectations about quantum computing, quantum computing is much slower than classical computing. Okay. And you say, well, if it's a lot slower, how the heck does it do better, right? And the answer is that is those algorithms we were talking about earlier, right? The, the recipe for doing it. And it turns out that quantum computers, because they have because of their quantum nature, have access to a broader set of algorithms than a classical computer. And sometimes those those new algorithms they get are dramatically faster. And that means that even if the classical computer has a speed advantage, the quantum computer has an algorithm advantage, and which one of those wins is basically a race. And, you know, we, we call this the classical hare versus the quantum tortoise. Okay. Um, <laughs> and what we see is that indeed, like in some cases, if you get it, if that algorithm benefit is big enough, you can get it. But what we see is that that's, it's not at all a general thing. It's going to be specific problems that have these good algorithms. And even for those problems, the problems are going to need to, going to, going to, need to be big enough that there's enough of an advantage that comes from the algorithm. and So it's complicated. It, it is a little complicated, but I, but bottom line, for most of the things that we do in the near term, quantum isn't going to get us there. There may, probably will be a small number of things that if they can sort, sort out some of the engineering issues will be very, very promising. And the key is going to be understanding which category different problems are in. And we're working on that right now. Neil Thompson is the director of the Future Tech Research Project at MIT. He also has appointments at CSAIL and MIT's initiative on the digital economy. This has been a super interesting conversation. Thanks. It's my pleasure. And if you're interested in knowing more about the CSAIL Alliance's program and the latest research at CSAIL, please visit our website at cap.mit.edu. You can grab this podcast on Spotify, on Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, if you want to learn about our new digital course coming spring 2024, it's called Driving Innovation with Generative AI. You can find details on our website. I'm Kara Miller. The show is produced by Matt Purdy and Nate Caldwell with help from Audrey Woods. Tune in next month for a brand new edition of the CSAIL Alliance's podcast and stay ahead of the curve.